This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to a special edition of Children of Song. It's the podcast that explores what it must have been like to grow up surrounded by music. I'm Brad Newman, the producer of this series. Earlier this year, when we first started this adventure, I had the pleasure of sitting down with David Cassidy and Ricky Nelson's kids. Well, they're not kids really anymore, about my age. But they make up, of course, the band Nelson. It was supposed to be our Teen Idol episode, and as you'll see, we learned a lot about screaming girls and getting your clothes torn off. But it was also one of the last times David Cassidy really talked about his career, one that he admitted was winding down after 49 years. But before we get into the episode, I wanted to share a little clip of David. Usually we serve at the cutting room floor. It was that moment when we had just patched David into the studio and Matthew and Gunner wanted to say hi. There's a respect and tenderness the Nelsons gave David throughout the interview. Here's some interesting insight from a teen idol who knew the end might be near. You want to bring David in? Oh, hi, David. How are you? I'm good. Who am I talking to? David, <laughs> it's Gunnar Nelson. How are you, man? Good to talk to you. And you too, buddy. How's, how you how, been? Uh, very busy, and um, especially this week, because um, they've uh, leaked it that I'm um, going to uh, retire at the end of the year. Are you and, really? Um, yeah, well, 49 years is a long career. Well, you've definitely, you've definitely earned it. Are you going to do the, the, the whole horse breeding thing and, and stuff? What are, what are you no, doing? What are no, you doing? No, I'm actually, um, believe it or not, because I traveled... So much, um, but only for work. Um, I'm going to take a long uh, trip, vacation, and actually see some of the places that I thought were great, but I couldn't stay long enough because I was touring. Yeah, the inside of and, a concrete uh, bunker looks the same no matter where you play. Yeah. So good for you. <laughs> um, that's great. How's Sue doing? How's everybody? How's the family doing? Uh, Sue and I are no longer. Okay, did not know that. That's okay. I'm glad you didn't. Um, that means it was not terribly well uh, publicized, which makes me happy. Um, we have been... Bo has just had um, a little bit of surgery, but he's fine. Oh, good. And, um, yeah, he's doing really well. And um, I've been on my own now for the last year and a half, and... I have to be honest with you, because I was an only child, I was not raised in Hollywood with my stepmother and my uh, father. I spent a lot of time by myself, and I'm really comfortable by myself. Oh, cool. And, um, yeah, I've been playing and writing. I just recorded uh, my very first solo Christmas album, and um, it did quite well. And I'm going to do one more um before I finish, which is going to be dedicated, oddly enough, as you're about to play Garden Party, um, to songs my father taught me. 
Oh, that's cool. About, that's cool. It is cool. Yeah. Well, so listen, about, before we get going, because we can save some of this. We're, yes. we're friends just catching up, for and, real. I haven't talked no, to I David know. in way yeah, we too are. long. We, exactly. Last time I saw him was at the Mohegan Sun, and, and he's just an awesome By the way, guy. David, you know, Matthew's here, too. Gunner's other half. We did split in the same Matthew. cell. How yeah. are you? I know. I missed you at the How Mohegan. I, I was a little late. I'm good. I'm good. And, I, I, you know, it's really good to hear you on the phone, and, and I'm glad we're doing this together. What a cool surprise. Good to talk to you, too. You too. Think about you guys, and and um, are you out playing often? Yeah, we, we do about 100 shows a year, and we actually put out a Christmas album this last year, too. <coughs> Excuse me, with Carney and, Carney and Wendy Wilson from uh, oh, from Wilson Phillips, and we, we went oh, top 10 with it, are. so it was pretty cool. Yeah, I've <laughs> known Carney and, uh, you know, I've known them both since they were about... 12 and 14. We went to swimming yeah. class with those girls when we were like toddlers. <laughs> so we knew, but it was, it was a great thing. Look, before you retire, David, we have got yeah. to all write a song together. I can't let you yeah, retire without I, doing that. that would we're going to have to. I'd love to do that with you guys. All right, That'd good. Be a dream. Yeah, we're, we're in Nashville, but we'll come to you. Okay, that'd be great. Okay. Uh, it's really easy to get to, by the way. Yeah, yes. Um, uh, which city in, uh, yeah. in South Florida are you in? Uh, Fort Lauderdale. Oh, Lauderdale. yeah. Okay, yeah. no problem. Got that okay? Are you, are I can't you, uh, say enough about how Matthew and Gunner couldn't have been more gracious and respectful of David during this interview. It's always a little tricky with one guest on the phone and two live in the studio, but these guys were great, incredibly generous, and genuinely in awe of David Cassidy and everything he had done and gone through during his career. They wanted to make sure he got the respect he deserved. So without further ado, here's David Cassidy and Matthew and Gunnar Nelson in a special Teen Idol edition. Welcome to another edition of Children of Song, the podcast that explores what it must have been like to grow up surrounded by music. I have the pleasure of spending some time with three singer-songwriters whose family legacies run deep in the music and entertainment business. Here in the studio, we're pleased to welcome Matthew and Gunnar Nelson. And on the phone, David Cassidy joins us from his home in Florida. It's great to have you guys here Great to be today. here. It Thank you so here. much. Great to be here, too. <laughs> Matthew... Let me let me start here sure. with you and Gunner, and and before we get too far into this, let's let's get this out of the way. You and your brother are obviously identical twins and sound incredibly alike. So I'm going to do my part to clarify who's talking, but don't be afraid to let us know. You know, if you jump in, and I I want to encourage you both to jump in. I know we've got a lot to say here today. You got it, Matthew. You know, when I look at your family, it, it's incredible. You know, I did a little theater growing up, and I, you know, I didn't have any legacy behind me. And when you look at your great-grandparents, both of you, they were vaudevillians. Mm-hmm. Your, your grandparents would create and star in one of the most iconic television shows of all time. We're talking, of course, about the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. And your father, Ricky Nelson, was one of the first rock and roll teen idols. Um, tell us. What was it like growing up with such a famous father, Matthew? Well, we never really knew any different from uh, what it was like growing up with somebody that, that wasn't famous. I think what, what for us, having famous grandparents really kind of uh, set the bar for us because we just thought that it was normal for people to come up and ask for your grandparents' autograph, you know, at dinner <laughs> or our dad the same way. And they were super down-to-earth people, and they were really uh, – 
really all about letting us know that uh, it was just it was just the family business. You know, our dad started on that uh, well on radio when he was six, uh, television when he was eight, and that went on for fourteen years. And as kids, we kind of can't remember not being around music or television or whatever. Um, our dad toured a lot. You know, he was on the road a lot. Uh, when we were growing up, he was kind of in the second phase of his career with the Stone Canyon Band and doing the country rock thing. And, of course, we were kind of hippie kids, you know, Southern California, Hollywood Hills kids. And uh, so for us, it was just very, very normal. And our dad never had a star moment. You know, we never saw him pull the diva or anything like that. He was kind of the opposite of that. He was almost remarkably shy about his, his fame and his success. Gunnar, when you were growing up, if music was really such a part of your life with your dad, was there a certain song that he shared with you that you would sing together that you remember? I mean, it's not easy, you know, raising twins. I can't imagine even getting them to sleep. I know I, I sang to my daughters. Yeah. Did, you, did he sing to you? Well, when we were growing up, Matthew mentioned a little earlier that we were growing up during his Stone Canyon band phase. Uh, that was what we were becoming musically conscious around the time that he had the hit with Garden Party. And Garden Party was really the song that, that we heard coming from down the hall when he was putting the Stone Canyon Band together. Yeah, kind of like a little, it's a very sing-songy chorus for kids to, to learn. Well, it's all right now, I learned my lesson well. You see, you can't please everyone, so you got to please yourself. You know, it's super easy, you know? That's mm, so nice. You say it sound good. <laughs> David... You know, America fell in love with you in the 1970s. Where I grew up in the Midwest, every girl had your poster smiling back at them on their closet door. Um, you sang hits, of course, like I Think I Love You and Come On, Get Happy. Uh, but you've been making music and touring the world for almost 50 years. Um, really, 49 this year, baby. 49. Just incredible. Yeah. Your parents. Yeah, it's been incredible. What a journey. Oh, your parents, they were both professional actors. But your father, Jack Cassidy... It was quite the character. Um, your parents divorced early, and I, I kind of know what that's about, too. Um, so do we. <laughs> not easy. Not fun. Um, not and, fun, not easy. No. And um, we all get um, from, I don't know about Gunner and Matt, what their experience with it. I was three and a half, hmm. and then I moved. We lived in Manhattan. My, both my mother and my father were incredibly talented um, musically. My father was a brilliant actor, and he won a Tony Award. He was nominated m many times for Tonys and also for uh, Emmys. I also, when I moved uh, out of Manhattan and my mom and dad got divorced, I moved in with my mother's family in a small town, um, West Orange, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Unlike the boys who lived in the Hollywood Hills. My father was never a big star, unlike Rick was, Ricky. And um, I had the opportunity to just be a normal guy and walk to school, in those days you could do that, to a public school. And um, my grandparents were primarily responsible for influencing me and being my guides and and my role models. I was exposed to such a beautiful, loving, caring environment. But everybody in my mom's family played an instrument. My grandmother was a pianist and 
taught piano. Uh, all my uncles played either violin or saxophone, anything. And I was around music every day. My grandmother would be teaching piano. I thought um, everybody did that. And I thought your answer, by the way, Gunnar or Matthew, whoever did answer, <laughs> we didn't know any different. Yeah. Right? Right. It's true. Yeah. You, when people asked me, what was it like? You had the biggest fan club in the world. You were the number one person touring all over the planet. You know, and, and what was it like? And I, I, the only way to answer it was like phenomenal, um, overwhelming, because I was also doing a television series at the same time, um, m much like Rick did, um, Gunnar and Matthew's mm -hmm. father, yeah. recording not only as myself solo, but also recording as the Bartridge family. Let's, let, let's take that back a little bit, just because I don't want to get too far yeah. ahead. We're going to have plenty of time. We're going to get to the Partridge family. Yeah, but, I, I yeah. didn't know there was that kind of similarity. Do you know our, our, our father was actually really influenced as a musician by, by our great-grandma Nelson? She actually oh. taught piano as well. He would come home from wow. Gardner School right there in Hollywood, and there was right. Grandma Nelson teaching piano. And he, he said, man, she had a great left hand. She was a ragtime player. And she was just oh, wow, just yeah. brilliant on people. But that was his childhood, too. Yeah, David, I think you had a lot of similarities. I mean, a lot yeah, of similarities, think about, obviously, you know, with David, our father. David's, um, I, I don't disagree. Yeah, I, I honestly, the similarity between Ricky Nelson and David Cassie are huge. You yeah. know, I can, yeah. it, it is interesting, Matthew. Mm -hmm. it, it, it is huge. Um, and, but here's another thing is the influence, too, of, of your fathers and, and the kind of impact they had. I mean, David, you didn't see your dad a lot, but he did take you around or to Summerstock Theater. And uh, yeah. I did a lot of that with him. Um, that's when I would see him. Um, I would spend weekends. But before he left, I remember I was about three and a half or four years old. Every day he would play records. Um, some of them were 45s. And he recorded his first Broadway show was that he was like one of the two leads he was such a brilliant Irish tenor. Um, people don't realize that my father was an incredible musician and um, incredibly gifted. He did not play an instrument, but his voice was his instrument. And as we know, um, and the boys can tell you, I mean, they've also played guitar, but as do I, but your voice is your instrument. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that is sometimes overlooked I felt very blessed as a kid to have my dad, who wasn't really famous. He became much more successful as I became successful and surely became very successful. But he never achieved the kind of fame he wanted. And he was um, bipolar. He was manic depressive. And he also was alcoholic. Hmm. So it, it's a very, very interesting combination when you put it together with a remarkable talent. But he taught me a lot of songs, and we would sing together. When I was a little kid, I have a good ear, and I was just blessed with it. My mother was a wonderful singer also and did a mm -hmm. number of Broadway shows and also Somerset. And uh, from that time, you know, I, I was introduced to Cole Porter to Rogers and Hart, 
Rodgers and Hammerstein. Wow. And then, um, you know, all of the great songwriters, certainly Gershwin. And all of that was around me as a really young boy. And then as I got a little older, like 10 or 12, I would go out and visit them when I still lived in New Jersey. Um, and I eventually moved to L.A. with my mom to be closer to my dad because I'd hardly ever see him except on Christmas. Hmm. But he would always want to sit down and sing with me. He loved my voice. He loved the fact that we could sing together. And um, that was such an amazing influence on me musically. So the only artist at the time, I'm going to say the early 60s, that we agreed upon, that we both thought, well, there were two. Bobby Darren was one, and um, Tony Bennett was the other. And I, to this day, remember us uh, having arguments about other artists, about this and that, and he was very old school, which I was, at the time, kind of like, oh, Dad, but I appreciate so much now. I, I can't even tell you. And, that, and I eventually really appreciated it. So I, ca I can go on and tell you story after story, but I don't want to... Um, no, that, that's wanna... okay. Let, 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 let's 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 go back with Gunner a little bit with your father because yeah. I thought that was that this was so interesting that when he got into recording his first single, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, he was trying to impress a girl who was an Elvis fan. Well, weren't we all? You know, yeah. Any any, any any person, any any guy who got into rock and roll for any other reason or tells you for any other reason than to get the girls is lying. Is lying, and, and that yeah. was the same thing with our dad. You know, one thing same I have to point out to you, I'm sitting here listening to David's story, and, and as, a, as a friend and a fan, I'm blown away, too. There's so many similarities between his life story and, and our family's life story. Uh, our family's from Jersey. Our, our dad was born at Holy Name Hospital. Uh, Oz and Harriet in lived Teaneck, in, yeah. in Teaneck and Ridgefield Park and all that. Tenafly. And that's where they were. Wow. The, Nel the Nelsons were based out of Jersey. We were Jersey people. And Oz and Harriet. I did not know that. Yeah. And, and Gunnar and I recorded I at House of Music in East Orange, New Jersey once. I remember yeah, that. And, oh, my God. And we used to, uh, well, the, the Oz and Harriet had a big band, and that's where they met. I know. Ozzy was a very big band leader. Right. He was a, he was a teen idol in his day. And and that's what? how they met. That's how yeah, it's uh, kind of a heartthrob, like a Rudy Valley type heartthrob. And that's, I got it. Yeah, I and that, it. and so no, they would commute. About almost like my father's. Uh, exactly, exactly right. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. And they would commute from Jersey into the city. Uh, they did a couple of residencies here and uh, and did a lot of the big band stuff. That's how they met. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so they did the the whole New York Jersey thing for a while, and then of course they moved to Hollywood. Just like David did. As many did in those days. As many sure. did. Well, television was brand new. The fad of television was absolutely brand new at the time. Correct. And in Ozzy, when I read his autobiography, it was really sweet because his first love was music. Absolutely. And when you read, I re I that. When you read his autobiography, he was talking about the annoying fact that the adventures of Ozzy and Harriet kept on getting picked up year after year. He thought it was going to be <laughs> something they could do when they weren't touring with the band. And then he could do it in the off-season. But his love was going out and touring with the band, and much to his you chagrin, know, they, it just kept on getting picked would, up for 14 years. That's interesting because— Right, he, and they got picked up for like 42 episodes. 435 <laughs> wow. episodes, David. But he oh, was— but, but, but every season, oh, it, yeah. you know, it's down, it, it was when I was on Partridge Family in the early mid-'70s, it was 
24. Yeah, right. they so did 26. They, yeah, they did 26 shows per season. Yeah, that's what they did. But yeah. your dad was really a leader because it started as kind of like a little skit oh. on the Red Skelton show. That's right. right. And then, really? you know, he. Yeah, t- yeah. Uh, that Grandpa Ozzy was discovered by Red Skelton, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah, I on love the radio Red show. Skelton. Oh, so funny. So uh, th- funny. But then he oh, kind of took the lead on that well, because what there were was... writers, right? And then he was really writing himself, too. He's like, uh, he was. No, I want to do it this way. Well, how the whole thing happened, you know, back then, I mean, entertainers, you were expected to do it all. That's just what yep. you, you weren't able to specialize. You had to sing. You had to dance. You had to make people laugh. You had yep. to do all of those things. It Write was expected of you. Do it, do it live. Do it right the first time and don't screw up. And that was the normal. And, and the, the story goes is that Ozzy and Harriet's banter between their songs was so funny. Their shtick was so funny that the comedy kept on getting, the bits kept on getting longer and longer, and the songs kept on getting shorter and shorter. And so by the time the Red Network. Yeah, yeah. Then, then Red Skelton saw them and put, put them on his radio show. It was a big hit. The network, ABC, heard them and offered them a pilot. At the time, a pilot was a feature film. And so they made a feature film yeah. called Here Come the Nelsons. That was actually on, on Universal. It was a hit. And then ABC, which was a fledgling network, our grandfather got a little more control going with the fledgling network. And, and they, they gave him control of the show. Now, the, the irony there was he was a really big believer and you couldn't do uh, – there's him saying you can't do art, good art by committee. And the irony here is that that's all it is now is, sure. you know, no, that's th- exactly you know. right. And he, uh, exactly he really right. it's true. So he really believed that uh, it wasn't that he was a, a control freak. As a matter of fact, you talk about anybody that worked on the show. They loved the man. Mm. He never made them. He never embarrassed them. He never made them. They, they wanted to raise the bar and work well for him. Well, when Ozzy and Harriet started, you have to imagine what TV was like. I mean, if you look at the honeymooners, it looks awful. It's all kinescope. And Harriet and it's Oz. It's kinescope, but it's brilliant. It's yeah, brilliant. Oh, no, no, brilliant it's comedy. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant comedy. As far as the look the is look concerned. Yeah. And Oz and Harriet apparently had gone down to the movie theater and they'd caught From Here to Eternity. And they just loved the way it looked. So much so right. that Ozzy researched and found the director of photography from From Here to Eternity and hired him. And he was the DP for Ozzy and Harriet for all of those years. He wow. paid him three times so the going smart. rate just to make it look good. And, and shot it on film. So Smart. Very smart. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that was the kind of guy he was. And, and yes, he was hands-on. Yes, controlling, but not in an, in an oppressive sort of way. And he wasn't a bully at all. But people were so unbelievably loyal to him because he treated them great. And he was an innovator. That's all you have to do, man. That's we, it. Know this. When you look yeah. at it, you know, because this was – no one ever thought of this at the time. And it's funny. It's copied to this day. That he put his son Ricky mm-hmm. to sing at the end of the show. Now you can't find a Disney show now that doesn't have the star of well, the show sing at the end. And of right. course, they did that for you too, David. Now, and that was that was actually pretty innovative at the time because what the industry felt was free milk and a cow. If a kid could see music sung to them for free on TV, they wouldn't go down to the record store and actually buy the records. And Oz right. thought they were wrong. And no record company would actually do a, a record deal for Ricky Nelson, even though he was a big star on TV. He had to go to a jazz label called Verve and do a singles deal. Oh, I remember Verve. Yeah, 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 a really reputable jazz label and do a singles deal. And and it really worked out for for Ricky and for Oz because after that first single sold a million copies that first week, uh, it it changed everything and they were able to do a legitimate deal. Yeah. Before we go too far, I want to I want to listen to a little Ricky Nelson. Um, Rick, can you put in track track number one for us? And this was his first number one hit here. Poor little fool. Love 
I used to play around with hearts Pacing at my car But when I met that little girl I knew that I would fall for a little food Oh yeah So beautiful It's such a beautiful Those voice Those are the Jordanaires backing him up Elvis, yeah. Elvis, Elvis yeah, the extraordinaires. Yes. <laughs> was that again your, your dad or his dad setting him up so well too to no. surround him? No, no, not at all. Actually, it was it was a little bit different. See, people don't know this about our dad. When he started making records, he was sixteen, and uh, it was West Coast. I saw him when he 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 recorded that song, mm-hmm. and he did it on television. Mm. Uh, he looked like he was 12. You could see the zits through his makeup, man. Yeah, so you was, really could. I know, man. Well, you see mine, too. <laughs> Me, too, still to this day. Yeah, I guess what, it, what happened when he was 16, you know, he was a big Carl Fer- Perkins fan. That was his big hero, was Carl Perkins. I can hear that. Yeah, yeah. and he, be, he became really good friends with Elvis, but they kind of had a rivalry. There was really only one guy in the 50s well, that no gave question. Elvis a run, you know, which is... If you were alive in the 50s and are conscious and were a music fan... Mm-hmm. Elvis was the guy, and Ricky was the only guy that could really kind of challenge him. Well, there were only two you know? guys, two rockers in the fifties that had number one albums in a singles world. It was That's Elvis right. and Ricky, and and uh, I guess what happened was. Our dad was doing the television show like like David did. You know, you're kind of chained to that world. You know, you're you're a you're a show party. That, that's you're a five the world. There's no question. Yeah, yes. it's a five day a week. It's gig, gig a yeah. real gig. But it know? is marketing because it does get your name out there, it, right? It does. In a brand, it does. It does. It does. And there's there are blessings and curses, which I'm sure David could literally write volumes about. But I I, I will could. say that um, that our dad at 16 was making it up just like everybody was uh, back then as they went along. You know, you had Sun Studios in Memphis. They were doing their thing. Of course, you had the doo-wop stuff happening in New York. It was it was almost uh, regional stuff. And in the 50s, you had, you had uh, Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent and Ricky Nelson out of the West Coast. Our, our mm-hmm. dad, actually, his first single, not that one. It was actually uh, Fats Domino's I'm Walking. He right. sang it actually live on the show. Um, he didn't have a band. Nobody did that. He, yeah, he, he he didn't have a band. Actually, Barney Kessel, a, a jazz player, played on the on the I sessions. I know Barney Kessel. Sure, of course. And he, and he was a, a legend, but he hated rock and roll. And you know, our dad, you know, the first <laughs> single had saxophone. Our dad hated saxophone on rock records. So, what happened was he he knew he had to put a band together, and he actually uh, heard about a band that was looking for a job. Uh, it was the great James Burton. Uh, Joe Osborne on upright bass and Richie Frost. They had Joe backed. Osborne played on my first couple of Absolutely. Hits. Joe Osborne was, bass he wound player. up, yes, exactly, a legendary bass player. And that was our dad's rhythm section. And, I mean, James Burton to this day, I mean, he wound up being Elvis's music director from 68 on. Elvis kept trying to steal yeah. him because everybody would see that skinny kid on television playing the Telecaster. But they made a noise that was, it was defining. And Poor Little Fool that you just heard wound up being the first number one single on the Billboard Hot 100 chart when they came out with that. It was the very first one. It was written, kind of, by Sharon Shieldy, who was uh, Eddie Cochran's girlfriend. Our dad completely rewrote the song. Really? She, she hated it when it first came yeah, out. Yeah, she wrote it as a ballad, as like kind of a syrupy little ballad, and our dad picked up the pulse slightly and uh, gave it a little bop to it. Give that kind a little, of feel, little malt shop thing nice. to it, but it connected with people. Yeah, that's rock. Yeah, that's rock and roll in the fifties, man. That's right, and and it and it seemed to work. But it was, as Matt mentioned, kind of like a regional sort of thing. You had Sun Records in Memphis doing their kind of like hillbilly rockabilly thing. You had the Doo Whoppers out here in New York, and that was awesome. And California yep. was kind of like its own its own thing. And uh, these were these well, were, it was surf. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. Was Beach Boys mm-hmm. uh, in the early sixties. 
Yeah, and, and there was you know Dick Dale and the Deltones and all those guys that were influenced by uh, I would say by Cochran mm-hmm. sure. and by some of those Texas Southern you know Texas rock kind Bo- of yeah thing, Bob Wills and all that kind it of was stuff. Go- it was going more yeah, guitar- yeah, it was more, going more guitar oriented at the time which well, was I'm gonna more. raise a fuss I'm gonna raise a holler exactly right and, 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 you know, you had these kids. I, I mean, I asked my dad once when he was still around, did you guys realize what kind of an impact you were going to have? I mean, what when, when you heard Hello, Mary Lou for the first time, d- coming back through the speakers in the studio, did you know what you had? Hmm. And he was like, no, man, we were just we were just kids when, when rock right. and roll had no rules, just making music that we would like to buy ourselves. That's it. And, and that's really interesting because it's another point I want to uh, point out to our audience here is that the accessibility to these celebrities w- wasn't what it was today. You know, they yeah. didn't have the there were only a couple channels on there. So your dad might even go and record and even perform that song on the show live and be able to walk to his car with his parents without anybody even saying boo to him. Sure. But then but then you weeks later and the same thing happened to David. Right. Exactly. He said, you know, it was one thing because he grew up on the TV show and, and that was really great because he was a TV star and that's fine. But he started making music. Because he was on a date with a girl named Arlene, and an Elvis Presley song came over the radio, and he wasn't used to this because he was a TV star at the time, and she started to swoon, and she forgot Ricky Nelson, TV star, was sitting next to her in a car. So in desperation, he just kind of said the first thing that came to his mind, which is, well, I'm going to make a record, and she laughed at him, oh, Ricky, you can't sing. So he decided, man, if I'm going to make one record to hand to this girl in school, I'm going to do it. He went down to a local record store called Wallach's Music City. Where they used to hang out, Hollywood and Vine. I remember that. Yeah, remember that place. That was yeah. his hang. And I that's... remember Wallach's Music City. Yeah, and there was a booth. Well, that in... was, I, I remember from the early seventies. Yep. Yeah. Oh, still it was, it was still there. there. It's not there anymore. That's where our dad's uh, no. star on, yeah. the, on the Hollywood Walk of Fame is. But there was a booth in the back you could go to, and you could basically sing a karaoke version of a hit of the time, and walk home exactly. with a, with a novelty forty-five. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did. And he was his plan was just to play it for this girl at school, but Ozzy overheard it playing in the hallway. And he came down to ask what the noise was, and our dad kind of sheepishly said, well, this is me, Pop. And he's like, oh, we got to put that into a show. That's how it happened. Interesting. And, but he said oh, when wild. the difference was from, I mean, it was amazing, all these girls that, that he went to school with, and just say, hey, Rick, how's it going? And just, you know, it was kind of cool that he was on a TV show. Yeah, he went to Hollywood High. But mm-hmm. when, he start, when he sang for the uh-huh. first time, those same people yeah. in geometry class wanted to rip his clothes off. Hold it. There you go. You know what it's like, David. Come on, man. It was overnight. It was like, whoa. I totally understand that. <laughs> Listen, we're we're going we're gonna to get to the ripping of the clothes in a second because I know there's some good stories. But before we do, and you were talking about the similarities between the families, I don't know if you guys know this, but that when David was cast in the Partridge family, they didn't even know you could sing. Correct. Really? Well, they knew, no. actually, wow. when it, after, after my, like, fifth audition – and the only time they knew, they cast me as an actor. Remember, I had become an actor. I'd worked with the L.A. Theater Company in my last year as I, in high school in L.A., and I moved back to New York two weeks later, began studying there, and I got my first professional job as an actor in a Broadway show. I was seen by a casting director who gave me his card and said, listen, if this thing ends... I've got an idea for a motion picture that we're doing. He was with CBS Films, mm-hmm. which was a division of theirs at the time. This is 1960. 
the the end of 1968, almost 1969. So was that I went out. Green gems or cold gems or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, no, this was oh, CBS. This CBS was CBS. So he actually didn't get this movie, but then it, it led to the audition Correct. for the TV show. Uh-huh. And uh, and here's another interesting fact. He had um, you you show up to your screen test, and and what happens? Who do you meet there at the screen test? Oh. You you didn't think you would see. It, no. My stepmother, Shirley Jones, who was a <laughs> winner. Seriously. They didn't I know. You had no idea. You walked in and you saw Shirley just kind of hanging out there? She was, she Apparently, was he goes phone. up to her and says, what are you doing here? Oh, man, that's awesome. Oh, it, no, it was unbelievable. It's, it's kismet. There it is. Uh, yeah, oh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's, so they had no idea that you could sing when you got cast for the Partridge family. I would have loved to. They didn't to have... care. No, no, understand. I had to audition... And read for the, the casting director, the studio, and then for, I did like four or five um, readings, and then for the network, and they chose two what you would call teams. And in those days, in 1970, what they did was live filming of a scene from the half-hour situation comedy. And I played guitar and this is a long story i played guitar but i was never interested in pursuing a music career i was always the lead singer in like chorus and in church etc but before uh there was any dialogue once they said action i had a i had an electric guitar which was a stratocaster which i still play I sure hope and, you still have it. If you yeah, want to sell, sell that you know, guitar, I, <laughs> uh, no, I don't have that one. <laughs> I've, I've given away about a hundred, <laughs> but um, that's another story. <laughs> but I started playing, and uh, remember, I don't know what the music for this thing is going to be. I'm trying to get the job as an actor. But what I did was, before the first dialogue, I started playing the intro to Voodoo Child's Slight Return. And that's a Hendrix song, oh, by yeah. the way. Oh, yeah. Most of you don't know. <laughs> so I did that. There you go, brother. Uh huh. And they, you know, they almost didn't notice, and the network did not care. They wanted us to be kind of like the monkeys, I guess. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, same studio. They thought they were going to have the same um, background singers that the monkeys had. They thought that you were going to have exactly, the same studio musicians. You're going to stunt sing. By the way. Yep. Yeah, they'll bring but Mark then, Hudson in to sing. Taylor vocals. Brothers. Yeah. But in the pilot, you you sang this. Uh, Rick, play a little trick. Yeah, I did sing that live. I'm sleeping and right in the middle of a good dream. I call it once I wake up. Something that keeps knocking at my brain Before I go insane I hold my pillow to my head And spring up in my bed Screaming out the words I dread I think I love you it's so great. I uh, mean, it's, it's just iconic. <laughs> this so man iconic. is so rock and you know, roll, he made harpsichord cool. <laughs> Think about yeah. that. Man. Uh, I didn't have anything to do with that, obviously, because I had no... Um, I was in awe working with, as we were talking about, Joe Osborne. W- was that the Wrecking Crew? With That's the Wrecking Crew, isn't it? I worked with the yeah, Wrecking Crew. Yeah, yeah, Hal Blaine. They yep. were my band for 
over 150 tracks. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's another similarity. It's been said that Ricky Nelson learned how to sing on Million Selling Records, as did David Cassidy. He had the, he had the, like, the most amazing band in, in the history, seriously, of, of, of recorded yeah, music. Other than, other than the boys in Detroit. Of course, yeah, that's yep. it. Yeah. You know, um, Max Bennett and Joe Osborne in The Wrecking Crew and... James Jamerson. Oh, oh Jamerson! I mean, yeah. gosh, you know, the, of all time. my my bass hero. Yeah, in, in yeah, Hitsville, USA, man. I'll sure. tell you what. If you uh, play bass, oh, how I'm, could he not be? Yeah, that's uh, Jamerson and McCartney, my two heroes. And yeah. and yeah, David, well, you, you referred to a lot of that as bubblegum music, but uh, it, it is maybe the best bubblegum music that. around. You know right? what? It's melodic pop, and there's nothing wrong with that. Just like there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a teen idol. It's a it's a lot of responsibility. But, uh, David, I was mentioning before you came on that I wrote an article for Rolling Stone on the whole subject, and they, they asked about that and how it felt, and, and uh, of course, they wanted to focus on our dad uh, for the most part. But what I said was, you know, when I look at it, it's kind of a noble thing to do because uh, for someone like uh, David Cassidy or Ricky Nelson, you're millions of girls' first crushes, and it's safe for them. They're not going to get hurt. Exactly. You know, and that's— he was safe. Yep, and that's a. I would it's yeah. a responsibility, and it's and it's really millions of girls' first loves before they kind of really enter dating and do that whole thing. Man, there's some nobility right. to that. That's that's actually a big responsibility. And there is it's, oh, it's an intangible, right? Because there's nothing. I mean, you're talented, obviously, but there's something about it that that you're you don't you're not overly aggressive. I mean, it's not something you can just point someone and say you're going to be a teen idol. I mean, it's sort of an intangible no. quality. No, no, no. You, you it you has can, to happen organically. To be honest with you, as much as. Um, I think we all got some help with, uh, you know, Gunner and I were in a lot of teen magazines and stuff, uh, but we actually never did an interview for Teen Magazine. It just, it went that way. And got a it. lot of our interviews were kind of clipped from other things and pictures and all that. But I wouldn't take or it just back. completely made up in my day. Sure, yeah, sure, sure. And, sure. And, and, and that's kind of how it was. I mean, the same thing happened for our dad and the whole thing. But, you know, I yeah. got to tell you. Um, and David, more than anybody on this planet, except for maybe our dad, we knew it for a, about a year and a half. It sounded like a jet engine when you hit the stage. With, really? Yeah. It did. There's I mean, a very particular pitch that a teenage girl makes when she's at a concert watching a teen idol. It's literally, it, it's literally, <sighs> it's a jet engine. Really? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. No one, no one, no one heard David's music for three years and he was on stage playing with the band because you couldn't hear over the girls. Well, let's get into how the girls were now because we're, we're at that point when, when they would go after you, it, it's scary. I mean, they, people get, talk about this tearing of the clothes. Would they literally tear the clothes off their, your body? There's a big difference between idolation or ideation and, and someone wanting a souvenir to take home and when the souvenir your that they hair. want to take home is your oh, yeah. hair oh man i mean david how many times has some errant girl that's reached up when you're going through a crowd and grabbed a handful oh. of your hair and you keep oh, on walking and she stays there with it oh geez. oh it hurts mm-hmm. it, it does you know i had to go through an awful lot of um effort to uh avoid that situation it became more for them than for me, yeah. because w- what happens in a um, crowd when you get more than, especially with young girls, it's like true. 13, 14, 15-year-old girls, or even younger, is they get that, you, you described it as a jet engine. I, I can only tell you I've done it all over the world. I used to go in, um, that you would go in and, and like fire engines and ambulance cars 
And the limos were only decoys. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. I left Madison Square Garden in the back in a trunk of a Toyota. Now, that's awesome. That's rock and yeah. roll right there. <laughs> that's rock and roll. That is. That's rock and roll, man. It took me to this dump oh, out geez. in Queens because everybody knew I either stayed at the plaza. Or at the time, I, I was... Yeah, I would either stay there or where my dad stayed. And interestingly enough, later when I met with David Bowie and he wanted to produce me, he stayed and lived at the Sherry Netherlands. Wow. And, um, you know, as I was born and raised in New York City, I was really comfortable there. They took me to some dump out in Queens. (laughs) And because of the madness, I didn't hear from them for like three hours. Oh, yeah. Wow. Literally. I'm sitting out in uh, alone in a one-room, you know, you'd call it a dressing room, I guess. It could have been but worse. They could have left you in the trunk. I, <laughs> I, what what are, I was. alone. What about stories from your father? Does he share some stories when trying to leave these venues? It was crazy. Well, he played the Atlantic City Steel Pier when it was still up. I want to talk about that. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah do, go, that. David. You, you tell the story. Okay, let me tell you the story. You played the steel Oh, I think we lost David. Is he there? Is we, he still there? We might have lost David. Okay, I'll start the story. Maybe David will come back in. Uh, okay, wait, wait, oh, wait. There wait. he is. Oh, there he is. is. Okay, we got him. Okay, so we got him. It was a stockbroker calling on the other line. <laughs> As you were, David. All right. So, I don't have a stockbroker. <laughs> I am the stockbroker. I don't own a stock. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 1971, 72-ish? Uh, Stockings are another story. <laughs> okay, 1958. Ricky Nelson... At the time, his name was Ricky before he became Rick Nelson and the Stone Canyon Band. Ricky Nelson held the all-time attendance record. And there was chaos to get in and out of the pier because when you're on a pier and the stage is at the end of the pier, you have to get on and off. And when you're, we're talking about 20, 30,000 people that are fans that are there to see you, Ricky owned the uh, attendance record, for a lack of a better word. And when I played there, there was such chaos. That was 1958. Right, right, yeah. When I played there, it was 70, I'm going to say 72 or 3 or something like that. And, uh... I had to decide how to get on and get in the backstage area, which at the time there were, there were, it was like a little stage area with a curtain. Uh, Like the curtain was like, I don't know, chiffon or something. (laughs) It was almost like you could see through it. And there was virtually no backstage, but you have to do three shows. (laughs) So the first time I go in in an ambulance, take me in, there are fans all around the stage, and they start screaming and, and, and reaching for me, and my security guy uh, and my musical director takes me backstage. Okay, get through that. Now I got to get out. Now, this is <laughs> six trips you got to go through. Oh, yeah. One, two. Yep, sure. There and back. Yep. There and back. There and back. Okay. Yep. So I hop in the back of the ambulance coming out. They all know I'm in it, and they're all over. <laughs> no, no, not lying. They're banging on it on the windshield. The whole thing is like black. 
and the cops show up and start, you know, pulling people off the windshield so mm-hmm. the driver can see yep. the ambulance. So the second time, the second show, same day, at the Steel Pier, at which its its signature was a horse that would jump off of, a, I don't know how high it was. The diving horse. The diving bucket. horse at the Atlantic City Steel Pier. Legendary. Sure. Absolutely. For real. <laughs> really? Peter oh, would yeah. not let it happen no, now. No, for real. And it mm-hmm. was, no, they it was wouldn't. like 30 years that they had done it. Oh, yeah. Mm. Can you imagine how that horse felt? Well, hey. Oh, my God. Ah. Wet. Anyway. <laughs> wet. Yeah. Horse felt wet. <laughs> I go. I go for the second show from the hotel out to the steel pier performing, which is at the very end of the pier. Yep. Wasn't thought out very well. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> well, also, they weren't expecting Ricky Nelson or David Cassidy yeah, right. and that kind of madness. So they bring a fire engine, <laughs> and I get to sit with a fire engine and a police escort on each side. And the fans, of course, see me. And they start sort of like hanging on to the, the fire engine. And the police are trying to keep them off the fire engine. And also there are people in the way. So you, you broke out the hoses and you went to work. <laughs> 30,000 kids there. 30,000. Now, it was one thing that, that David failed to mention is after about 15,000 people on the steel pier, it became a safety issue because actually the pier started to sway slightly. At 20,000, it's a real problem. David had 30,000. It's a yep. real issue it's at a, that it, point. Yeah, think about that. I mean, there were a lot of people that saw shows from David Cassidy or our dad that said that they were afraid a little bit that or that them. pier was going to collapse. Yeah, that would have been more concerned horrible for them than it was for me. It, exactly, and that's kind of like when Gunnar and I kind of went. It really was when Gunnar and I went through it too. We kind of had the same thing. I mean, there were a couple of of in stores. Yeah, they, they, they had to shut them down because we were afraid of the the girls hurting themselves because exactly. there was a. And and there was one time I remember we did an in-store signing thing in Massachusetts once, and we were scheduled. <laughs> we were, you know, those oh, things. Boy. We were we were scheduled for an hour, uh-huh. and um, they they oh, estimated boy. the the crowd of eight thousand girls showed up for an in-store at a record store. Those poor that poor town. It was Framingham, Massachusetts. Eight thousand people in a store in a sh- in a in shopping mall, and um, they they were so afraid. The girls, somebody passed word that we were leaving. And they started to get, they started to get hurt. Crazy. They yeah, started, started to get, they started to get violent. So, so, point. so Gunner and I said, "Listen, please spread the word. We're going to stay until we meet everybody." And we did. It was thirteen hours. Oh we my stayed. God. We but we st- met everybody. We did meet everybody. Some but, people went home, changed, had dinner, came back. All of a sudden, we were still there. And uh, good you know, for you guys. Well, no, it's not that. It's just you know, you, you feel really. No, it is that. Well, when you feel blessed you, to to be a lot there, of people would. No, it is that. A lot of people would blow them off. But a lot of people, Dave, you know what it's like being from a showbiz family? It's not, you're you're not just representing yourself. You're, no. you're representing a long line of ancestors that all sacrificed and conspired and built a reputation for your family name to get you to that place where it's your chance in the spotlight and you're either going to let them down or you're not. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's honestly not an onus. It's not, it's not a burden. It, it really honestly does feel like a, a privilege along with a responsibility. And, and I suppose well, it's a great it, motivator, too. My father taught me a great work, work ethic and his work ethic was so ridiculous that 
you know, he, he would go on and he said to me, do not ever work just for money. Mm-hmm. You work for the work. And if you are fortunate enough to get a job that is credible, that has creativity, artistic integrity, do it. Mm. But never show up late. Mm-hmm. Never miss a rehearsal. Yep. Never complain. And you work until if it's 18 hours, you work that way. And you play sick. And, it, and you play hurt. It, and you play with no <laughs> sleep. And, oh, oh, yeah. But, you play but, that's, but that's wonderful. If you come from a, a long line of people mm-hmm. who have been showbiz folk, the, the adage, the show must go on, is not just an expression. It's a way of life. It isn't. It, it, is. it really is. It becomes the true north in your compass. And it gets you up you on those what? days. You guys are so on the money about everything I've heard you say. Um, I didn't finish my um, story. Oh, go for it. I oh, wanted. yeah, I want to find out if you actually did successfully get off the steel pier if you're still there right now. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm still at the steel pier now. Okay. We're st- <laughs> I'm glad we cleared that up. I got, years, but yeah. I got to know what happened. Um, how did that work out for you? Okay, so we're only at the second show and you're on a I'll fire truck. I'll tell you how truck. it worked out. <laughs> I'll tell you how it worked out. The fire truck got me in and out. And because they had finally got some police there. In those days, there wasn't like a security thing. And they were not prepared for me. They did. They went, oh, yeah, David Cassidy. Yeah. They don't. They didn't know. They, they were like, oh, yeah, it's David Cassidy, guy on the Parks family, guy has got all those records, hits, right, right, right. And then the third time they said, we, we can't, the fire department can't do it. The police department, they'll destroy the, the police t- uh, car, and we're done, basically. Mm. You know, we can't take an ambulance when someone might be in need of help. Sure. Just to get you to so, here's what I did. Scuba tank. <laughs> you went under <laughs> the water. <laughs> you know <laughs> that would have been awesome. I wore, wig, <laughs> I wore a wig. I put on a female's jacket. Oh, how cool! I had a female press agent. Um, he did the Michael Jackson forming uh, clothes. Although there, you know, it wasn't. Maybe I was still wearing jumpsuits in those days. I don't. I can't remember. <laughs> but Nudie did my Nudie, who Dude. did Elvis's gold. Oh, we know. Yeah, he, he was the man. Yeah, Nudie, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, who is Nudie? Okay. Let's clarify. Okay, Nudie was the original yeah. rodeo uh, tailor, uh, like the cowboy tailor. Nudie. Elvis's gold lame suit. Uh, the famous he, one. He that's did Nudie. It is gold lame suit and. Virtually every uh, the Flying Burrito Brothers, star. yep, all that sequin oh, yeah. stuff. That was new. Those are nudie outfits. You're, awesome. right. You're so cool, Dave. Okay, then, keep, well, keep I decided the only way was I take the girl who was my PR person, who was there with me, and one of my band members, right behind us, about ten feet. But I would walk all the way with a wig and a little bit different outfit and stroll, not walk quickly, stroll with my face buried in her neck. And the <laughs> wig was a long wig. It was like long haired. I, I don't know where the wig came from. 
I'm sure maybe one of the girls I had that was singing with me had it. I don't know. Um, all I can tell you, I got all the way to where the dressing room, and they tore the wig off. Oh, no. They discovered it was me, and they tore it off. Like, and Mike, the guy that was in my <laughs> band, went up to her and said, you want to die? You want to die? Give me that. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Darius, 10 seconds. I'll bet the look on your face. I think, oh. I, oh, no. The deal that <laughs> the jig I is up, boys. to share about. <laughs> Run. No, the, the oh. deal I wanted to share, Ricky Nelson held the uh, record until the day I got there. Awesome. He said, only you and Ricky Nelson own the greatest event that has ever taken place here at the Steel Pier. Let's hear a little story Amazing. about R- Ricky Nelson, if, yeah. if we can. Sure. About and his uh, was in 1958. And, and, yeah. and what would he deal with at the time? And, and how did he feel about that? Now, do you want the real story, or do you want the story that the press would normally get? No, let's get the real one. Okay. Come on, we're bonding here, Gunner. Well, they, uh, they had to be very protective of our dad. Our dad was the show pony for the television show as well. And he always knew from a very early age his father and his mother would let him know, hey, look, we have a morals clause with the network. If you step out of line, uh, 45 people and their families are not going to be able to eat. So keep that in mind. And no he pressure. Always, mm-hmm. He always had that in mind. So when, uh, when they were on tour, uh, Grandpa Ozzy assigned a, I'm using air quotes here for the people out there on the radio, air, uh, he had a handler with him. And the handler would organize backstage entertainment and companionship for our father that was um, on the professional side of things to make sure that, that things would, would be discreet mm-hmm. and that there wouldn't be any chance of uh, made-up lawsuits or anything like that. Because you do become a target. When something like this happens, what David failed to mention is you really don't become a, a, a person anymore. You're not just a person anymore with basic human needs. You're a franchise. You're a franchise that becomes a target for, for nefarious elements out there that might want to say or do things that are not really cool for you or your family. I mean, Gunnar and I had frivolous lawsuits thrown. I mean, I got tackled on stage one day by some fan, got blindsided, almost knocked out. And I mean, it was, it was pretty, pretty rough. And uh, she got escorted out of the, the venue by our security who was trained and whatever. Next thing we know, we've got a lawsuit for um, $10 million from some, saying that she was roughed up. And it turned out good all the way to depositions until we found out that her mother was an attorney oh, and geez. wanted to uh, – literally she was brought to the show with her best friend. Her best friend rolled on her and said, oh, yeah, this was a setup. You know, Literally her mother lifted her on the stage and said, go get them. And um, the whole thing was, was planned. And, uh, you know, back back in that day, I mean, you, you hear about that stuff now, but that stuff happened to David. That stuff happened to Ricky. That was just kind of a part of the deal. So you become insulated. You have your inner circle of people. And in our dad's case, what was great about it is he could depend on his family. When he was on the set, he was he was Ricky. He was everybody's friend and, and a part of the family. And they all used to protect him. You know, it's like hanging out with it's hanging out with your boys on the street that you grew up with. They'd have your back. Was he aware that, uh, you know, there were professionals coming backstage to, to greet him or did he? Oh, think- absolutely. Yeah. That, wasn't, that wasn't a secret or anything. Right. But, you know, of course, this is long before he met oh, our mom yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and stuff. But if you think about it, I mean, honestly, if you're David Cassidy, how do you go out on the town and have just like a nice normal date without getting mobbed or interrupted? You don't. You don't. You don't. No. It's, it's actually don't. there is a certain degree of, of the energy that you experience on stage with all that love that comes at you. 
also comes with the fact that you're you're pretty lonely at times. As David said, he's pretty okay with being alone. I think the reason why Gunnar and I had a little easier because we are twin brothers and we went through the exact same thing together. And there were times the stress got to us. I remember Gunnar lost his voice once, actually in New York. We we're playing Radio City Music Hall, and um, oh man, yeah, awesome That's place. Oh, God. Awesome. And, um, you know, we actually, that was the only show we ever had to uh, reschedule, which we came back and played. But uh, it, honestly, it was the stress that got to him. And as his brother, I got to jump in there and, and take the interviews and kind of let him literally had to write things down on a paper for a week and the whole deal. But, I mean, this yeah, is. Yeah, I've had to do that too. Sure. Oh, it's, it's, it's a drag. I didn't have a twin brother. Yeah, I know. Th- you know, honestly, we had backup. We, we say that all the time, David. It's like at least we had, I, I always had backup. I had spare parts at all times, like to my right. And it, well, and it, it sounds like you guys really do have each other's backs. I wish I had someone that, well, I, I didn't wish I had a twin, but I wish I had someone that was that close to me. Oh, yeah. Who could be with me, who knew my brain and who knew exactly what to do. And, you know, I'm sure you're, because you guys have grown up from the time you could breathe, you learn to sort of back and forth with each other, and you could look at each other in the eye and know exactly what the other guy is thinking. That's true. And, you know, I was thinking, too, David, about our grandparents. The reason why they connected like they did, and they connected through music first, they respected each other so much. And as they built their dynasty, they had that same kind of relationship where they always knew that they had each other's back. I've got nothing yep. but props and respect for somebody like David Cassidy or Ricky Nelson that – Man, those guys were on their own, and no one else on the planet could possibly fathom what it would have felt like to be in their shoes at that time. Nothing but respect. No way. Let's let's hear a no little way. bit from Nelson. Um, you guys, obviously, you came out with a, a, a huge album in the early 90s uh, after the rain. Big hits like Can't Live Without Your Love and Affection, uh, After the Rain, and More Than Ever. Um and it's quite a departure from your father, your your style of yeah. music. Um, like his music was a departure from his father's music. Exactly. Yeah. Can we can we hear a little bit, or should we should we play a little bit? Sure. I, Matt, what key are you going to be uh, in I'll here? I'll do it. Where are you going to? No, no. Oh, love go, it. Go down, go down you one guys are going to play live. Love that. There you go. Okay. Yeah. There we go. Here Here a go. little bit. Here she comes. Just like an angel Seems like forever that she's been on my mind But nothing has changed She thinks I'm a waste of her time There she goes No, she don't know what she's missing Can't she see I'll never give up the fight I'll do all I can Till she understands my desire I've been on the outside looking in Let me into your heart, oh There's nothing on earth that should keep us apart Baby, I can't live without your love and affection I can't face another night on my own I'd give up my pride to save me from being alone Cause I can't live without your love There she goes Awesome. So, so good. And like your father... You know what I just thought? May I interrupt just for a moment? Sure. I loved hearing the, the connection 
that you two have, even just closing my eyes and listening to you, reminded me of the Everly Brothers. Oh, thank you for thank the compliment. You. Wow. Oh, no. do sound good. Well, I, like, I, uh, I aspire to be a... so great. Thanks, David. I, I, aspire, I aspire for us to be actually referred to as a cross between the Everly Brothers and the Smothers Brothers. So cool. <laughs> what great compliments that. Good lord that's But you had to transition so like your father that. too Thanks, right? David. I mean you've had to get you know yeah. here it was you came out in the early 90s and that was everybody it was all about that well, I our, mean they couldn't get enough of you you, you probably thanks. should have recorded really quickly well, more and more songs Our now. musical DNA was I think closer to to, to like guys like David Cassidy, you know, we were we were pop artists. We wrote pop songs. That's what we wanted to yep. do. We grew up with AM radio in the '70s. You know, David's music actually yep. had a big part of what we did. And um, the truth was, what was happening then was, you know, bands like you know Guns and Roses and blues-based hard rock bands. Gunner and I from Southern mm-hmm. California had more of that kind of pop music, and then the Southern California influences, like of course our dad, but. Like the birds, the Hollies, the Eagles, Linda Ronstadt, yep. you know, that kind of stuff. Yep. And, and you know, we're kind of like a heavy Fleetwood Mac is what we went for. And our image was clearly, you know, two guys that look like hot Swedish chicks. I mean, it took off. And, <laughs> you know. That's some nice hair. I wish I could have hair hey, like that. But, you know, and that's I the thing, too, is, is, is it, you know, David is a, a, you know, rather attractive man. The girls went nuts. And our dad was the same way. And, and well, we kind of realized that, that packaging is very important. You know, there's no, when there's no, it doesn't even matter if you're a son of or, or whatever, you come from that kind of family. Clearly, there's never any guarantee to a career Not. of your own. There's no guarantee at all. So you do what, whatever it is you can do. When an opportunity comes along, you do that. And, and when we actually came up with our image for that first record, we, you know, MTV at the time was actually playing music videos and we figured the fans had, yep. you had like an, a second, a second and a half when they're zipping through the channels to, to catch someone's eye. And have them park it on that station for a second. And so, of course, we peacocked. We, we had colorful videos when everybody else was doing the black and white spill beer on your girlfriend's videos. We were pop slash folk guys when, when the whole blues rock thing was happening. We were very unique and very different. And, and we were proud to come from Southern California. That was our influence. We were the Hollywood hillbillies. That's what we did. And, and, uh, and after all these years, it's kind of what we do now. Still thing. Still the same thing. That's so funny. Yeah. Hollywood hillbilly. I love that. <laughs> Let, let's go <laughs> and talk a little bit about how, you know, teen idols, you know, kind of get stuck in a rut. And you're not – did your father mm-hmm. experience that? And I know you did too, David, in terms of like – Not you, really. Well, you wanted uh, to be edgy, right? 49 years, buddy. Yeah, no, I okay. It took me a long time to really get over, but as being an actor or a songwriter – and then being able to produce and direct and um, go back to being an actor um, and then producing shows in Vegas. I did over 2,000 shows. I produced a move, two movies. I created a television series for Fox. I did a lot of work while I was there. And having that, I've done three Broadway shows. I'm getting tired listening to this. It's I know. This I'm just lot. getting tired It's a lot, right? My I'm gosh. tired of it, which is why... <laughs> Wow, that's exhausting. 49, and it's my last year of touring. I may do something once in a blue moon from there, but I'm basically no longer going to tour. I know I'm not going to play California after I play um, Santa Barbara and uh, Gora, and that's it. I'm I'm done. I live in South Florida. Yeah. Nice. Continue. 
it's like an 11-hour trip. Oh, yeah, it is. Home to hotel. Mm. And then you got to play. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to go the next day and play. And then you've got to fly. Mm. Well, he's not um, going to retire, by the way, until he writes a hit song with the Nelson Boys. There you go. That's, that's, let's yes. do that. because we, love to write We're trying guys. to bring artists together. <laughs> that's what, like that's to our work. goal. So let's do that. It, it's work. And then come back. <laughs> okay. Um, tell us okay, about... Okay, but you guys, if you live in Nashville... We're coming you to you. have got to come here. We're going to we come to you, absolutely. And, um, Can I come too? You can stay <laughs> here with me if you want, but, but we'll figure that out. Oh, can't, can't wait, man. This is going to be fun. Well, how's this? You're, Thanks, yeah, we We want to be... How's this? We're honorary brothers now, because David never had brothers, so... I never did. Well, I had stepbrothers. Stepbrothers, right, right. But I'm talking... Yes, yes. I'm talking... So he's going to be a triplet. You you guys and I, I'm going to say you and I, it's like you guys are one. We are. We Um, split from the same cell. You're you're allowed. It's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I would love to do that with you. And the one thing we failed to really discuss is there's an assumption from the media and especially earlier with me, because of the Fabians and mm-hmm. all the guys that were caught because of just because they were good looking mm-hmm. and weren't necessarily very talented. Correct. But they be, they became magazine teen idols. You guys have the goods, and thank God I do. I play live, and I love it. And this will be the last year. I'm not going to play California anymore. It's too far for me. Mm-hmm. And I only do two or three dates at a time, like I'm doing later on this month. Well, you've earned it, I'm David. Not... I mean, for real. You've, you've well, thanks, def- bro. You know, and and i got to say this, too. There, there was you. another similarity as well. The, um, Rolling Stone did an article on our father. Um, and actually, it was John Fogarty. He was called The Hundred Immortals. Mm-hmm. And John Fogarty said something about our pop who made it in there when they said something about, um, you know, the, he was he was – so good looking that it was hard for a lot of men usually to take him seriously, you and know, especially and, music, yep. music critics. Oh, music really? critics. with yeah. me. Same thing. Yeah. And then the same thing for David Cassidy. David, you're a solid, unbelievable actor, an unbelievable talent on stage. You can move a crowd. And it's the same kind of thing that we experienced in a smaller way because we had a much smaller window for that at that time. But there are a lot of people that don't want to go there and say, oh, they, you know, blew me off the stage unbelievable talent you know just falls off of him our dad was the same way yeah but our dad was the same way too it was like he never got when he was alive he really didn't get the credit that he deserved and And by the way I never said it so during this podcast Uh I loved your dad oh thank you and if you asked me like um, so many of his I can't even tell you but Traveling Man is still what a song! Yeah. You guys sing that. We do. We do. We do the. We do all the songs in our Ricky Nelson remembered show. But I think where Matthew was going is in that article. There was a great quote where Fogarty said, "For most critics to to admit that Ricky Nelson actually had the talent he had would be like having to admit that the prom queen had a brain." Sometimes yeah. when you're, yeah, sometimes yeah. when you're that attractive, you know, it's it's it it really kind of happened. I remember. Uh, something I don't really talk about a whole lot. There was one time right before we were very close with our dad. You know, we were very fortunate. We went to live with our mom, like a lot of kids in the seventies. You know, that dealt with divorced families. It was a big thing. Yeah, we, yeah. We we had to live with our mother because our dad was touring. But we always bonded on the music. You know, we always talked about music. He loved yeah. the fact we were playing, but he never forced us into it. We just wanted to do it. And um, I just remember there was a time that Gunner and I would uh, we were we just turned eighteen. We just um, actually no, we were seventeen at the time. Uh, we were just about to graduate from high school, 
And we went to go see our father was performing local at, you know, like one of those gigs where, you know, you're working, you're not playing. A, a, it was gig's, like, a gig's a gig. It was like a know? favor to a thing or whatever. But, you know, he had he had bills and all that stuff. And he was playing, I think, an RV convention or something like that, something that he was horribly embarrassed about. Right. But it was a gig. Right. And um, and honestly, there weren't a whole lot of people there. And it was an outdoor thing. And we went to see him. And he, he was really embarrassed. He kind of like a little sheepish about going on stage. And he, uh, yeah. he, he always he always kicked ass he always had a great show but i said what's up pop and he said well you know I'm, I'm really sorry about this you guys get to you know like well what's the what's the problem he's like well there's just not a lot of people here you know it's kind of and i said well there's a stage right he goes yep i said you got your band yep are they paying you yep i said then go kick their ass nice and he looked at me got this huge <laughs> i he love got this, you giving him <laughs> and he, get, he got this huge yeah. smile on his face he turned into That's like fine. you know yeah he turned into like a 15 year old and he got out there and he gave the best show I've ever seen to like a crowd of maybe 50 people. And I remember oh leaning my into, God. I leaned into oh my brother my and I said, uh, I said, Hey gun. And he goes, what? And I said, you know, what's really sad is that God forbid something happened to him. They would call him a legend. People would miss him. They'd really miss him. And unfortunately the plane went down a few months after that. Oh, and I felt really guilty. Kind of almost like I'd put that out there or something like that. But I was oh, right. Did. Come on. I was prophetic though, because it was like, after people lost him, they really missed him. But I mean, David they, was on to something when he was talking about the whole Fabian component of right. that. The problem yep. is, okay, right. Rick, Ricky Nelson comes out. He's got like the best band in the world, killer songs, the real deal. He's out there bringing it like Elvis and all of his contemporaries, Jerry Lee, all those guys. And then I think the, the team. Pretty face. Yes. Talent. Exactly right. Well, it, you guys remember the movie The Idol Maker? Did you ever see the movie The Idol Maker? I kind of saw a little bit of it. Okay, it's an early, early 80s movie, but it's about basically the fabrication of a teen idol slash pop star, and it was based on the Fabian story. Mm -hmm. I mean, loosely on that. They didn't want to get sued, but that's what it was. And they literally found a waiter who looked good. And he was like Johnny Bravo in, in the Brady Bunch. He fit the suit. And they've created a whole career around him and stuff. And, and the problem is being Ricky Nelson is that even though you know you, you have all those hits, they do the Fabian routine with some other artists that don't have the goods, and you unfairly get lumped into this whole they discount you because Correct. you're pretty, you're on a TV show, and they think you, unfairly that you're a product, merely a product that's fabricated like right. those other people. Mm -hmm. I can't even call them artists. Mm -hmm. They're performers. I get it. They're entertainers. I get it. But they're not artists. Right. And, and they're not and, and you, look, you look at David who got hired. They didn't even know he could sing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just a great actor. And, and it's like, holy crap. He really can sing. Not only can he sing, he can sing his ass off. And then it, boom, explodes. Actually, organically, if you think about it, he just had an outlet because of the television gave, gave exposure. No different than Ricky Nelson. Right. Same thing happened. But great songs, great image, great everything. And it's a phenomenon. And then they try to water it down a little bit because there's a lot of stuff that followed. Because it's pretty fabulous when you think about a David Cassidy career and how big that was at the time. Of course, the capitalists are going to want to try to recreate that. Sure. Of course they are. Yeah. You think? Yeah, right? <laughs> well, and like with Gunnar and I in a little way, you know, it's funny. All of those bands, those what they call hair bands, mm -hmm. the, the heavy metal, like pop metal stuff. The 80s bands? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. 90s Band. Right. right. See, Gunnar and I had long hair, but that's not the music that we did. We no, we no. we hit on pop top forty radio. We had top ten and, and number one pop hits. And when yeah. we have pop hits, all of those quote rock guys, they basically they disavow you. They dis yeah. you know they disown you. You're, you you have, have nothing no to do with them. If you're doing 
pop. Right, you have right. The talent if you're doing pop. Correct. So they because so much stuff in pop music is a fabrication. Sure. And so what happens now? Here we are, us, thirty years later, and people are lumping us in with all of those bands that wouldn't let us in the club because we had a similar look. We had the long hair. It's an it's an ironic kind of thing, and I think with with Gunner and myself, you can't really put us in a category. We we like if we ever go out to tour, it's been something we've been dealing with. It's been for a challenge lives. our whole career. Like who do we package ourselves with to go out and tour? Would that be a rock it would band? Be a good idea would it be a pop find band? Someone with credibility. It's and too I'm bad sure David Cassidy is. is apparently retiring this year. That's right. You guys could play together. I am at oh the end God. of the year. Oh. <laughs> we missed that one. We did. Um, yeah. Well, you know what? I would have loved to play with you guys because I can play and you guys can play and we could sing and we could do all kinds of things. I would have loved to have done that with you guys, but it's come a little too late for me. I have um, some arthritic problems in my back. I get shots and stuff. Mm. So I can play two or three shows at a time um, and then I need you know, week off or so. Like I said, David, we'll come to to Southern Florida. We'll bring some cameras. We'll set them up and we'll just do a show in your living room. Let's do it. Let's do part two in his living room when we hear that song. Uh, What a big fan. And I mean this sincerely. I was of your dad. And his talent. When I was doing the part show, I think it was 71, 72, and Garden Party came out. You have no idea how much respect I had for him at that point. And, you know, I'm sure they probably booed him off the stage, right? They did. In uh, in New York, when he had his, his Stone Canyon band, he played an oldie show. And it was actually – he had cut uh, Honky Tonk Woman by the Stones. And he had played a couple of Dylan songs that he had covered and Honky Tonk Woman, and they booed him off the stage. And they they really wanted to see black and white television Ricky. And yeah, that's one of the blessing and curses that we mentioned. You know, I mean, TV can be a great marketing tool, but the challenge is you you stay frozen in people. Integrity. Yeah, right. But but you know, breaking out of the box. Correct me if I'm wrong, David. But the thing is, is that that you stay stuck in people's hearts and minds as that person who was. 22 years old on black and white TV, and then when they see you 10, 15, 20 years later, um, television, 30. yeah, or th- 30 years later, it's a shock because they, they remember you yeah. when you were a kid, and they remember you when you were young and you were just starting out, and, and that's, that was always a challenge for, for our pop in that way, growing up in front of Americans on television is that, that he came out on stage at Madison Square Garden, and they really did expect black and white TV Ricky to come out there, but he walked out with his long hair and his sequins, his bell bottoms, his country rock band, his, his nudie outfit, his nudie yep. outfit, exactly. And and it yeah. was it was just Your nudie did it. Oh yeah, I suppose for folks to have to admit that their favorite artist has grown up, they have to admit that they got older too. Yeah, and it's and it's tough for them to do, and it that's is. what he always felt about it. So he wrote Garden Party from that experience, and I love right. that the hook line. All you can right. please, you know, we can't please everyone. You got to please yourself. Yeah. Love now. And that was a very, very big hit for him, too. Mm-hmm. It was. And it was it was a huge hit, but it was also very bold of him. It, it was a, it was a middle always, finger in a velvet glove. Exactly. That's what that was. And that was really his style. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't a, a brash, obtuse kind of guy. He was a very soft-spoken, a very gentle Obviously. person and, and very humble. 
And that song came out at a time when not, not just the industry, but the world in general had pretty much considered him yesterday's news. You know, he was, he was part of the Eisenhower of era thing. And, and when the whole flower power thing happened and the singer-songwriter thing, all that stuff was so uncool. I mean, Elvis, oh, Elvis no. had to make movies. Totally and, yeah, yeah. Elvis was uncool. Absolutely. So why don't we, why don't we end this session, at least this part one? Of of hearing a little garden party. Oh, you want oh, to? Okay. Yeah, it? Okay. I, I'd love you to, to sing and share that a little bit of that. Can I sing a little bit of it? Sure. Oh, we, 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 we could, and you can even join in on the third part if you want to. Okay, here, let's take it. Uh... Ooh, I went to a garden party to reminisce with my old friends, a chance to share old memories our songs again when I got to the garden party they all knew my name no one recognized me I didn't look the same but it's all right now I learned my lesson well see you can't please everyone so you got to please yourself La da da, la da da da, la da da da. Yeah, it's all right now. Yeah, I learned my lesson well. See, you can't please everyone, so you got to please yourself. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for for being a part of this. This was this was excellent. Thank Our you. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Truly. Thank Very you. Very special you guys. Well, thank you. And, and David is so good to hear your voice again. It's been way too long, my brother. We got to stay in yeah. touch. God bless you, man. God I bless you too, to buddy. You. Keep coming. Come and see me down here, and let's play a little before I end it. All right, you got good. it. You, you betcha. We're, we're going to do deal. that. And what a, what a pleasure Anytime this has been. This year, man. Okay. Uh, thank you, David. Okay. Lots of love to you, brother. Please. And to you, brother. Bye. Bye-bye. David Cassidy passed away on the evening of November 21st, two days before Thanksgiving. He gave a lot to his fans. They have a lot to be thankful for. He was surrounded by friends and family, including his two children, Bo and Katie, who he adored. He was 67 years old. Rest in peace. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.